The church is about love, justice, kindness, and goodness. When you live that out, you can transform your community. In 1984, Gary and Marilyn Skinner set those words into motion by starting the Watoto Church and Watoto Ministries in the heart of Uganda's war-torn capital of Kampala. Gary passionately believes that it is the responsibility of the local church to solve community problems. Today, Watoto Church cares for their community holistically through over 2,000 cell groups that meet in homes every week. Since that time, they've also founded Watoto Child Care Ministries, an international organization that responds to the cry of Africa's millions of children orphaned as a result of HIV and AIDS. Their vision is that these children would one day become the future leaders of Uganda and Africa. Gary is committed to replicating the Watoto holistic model throughout Africa. Today, he travels internationally as an advocate for local missions, inspiring churches all around the world, including Hope, to stop doing church and start being the church. It's a funny world that we live in. The people that we tend to idolize and put on a pedestal and even consider our heroes are people like rock stars and movie stars and, and athletes. But this weekend, I'm so glad you're here at all of our campuses because you're going to get to meet some real live heroes. Because while we're here worshiping at all of our campuses this weekend, there will be 25,000 people gathered at eight different campuses around Uganda because 31 years ago, Gary and Marilyn Skinner heard God's call to move there and to begin an English-speaking church, and God has moved in amazing ways, and it is actually changing the very fabric of that country from the inside out. And you're gonna get to hear about it this weekend and be challenged by them. Would you give a warm hope welcome to Gary and Marilyn Skinner? Thank you so much. We are so excited to be with you at Hope Community Church. I have waited a long time to be here. We've heard so much about you from our Watoto Children's Choir, who you've so graciously hosted, and of course from Pastor Mike and Laura, who have visited us several times, but most of all from Don and Doug Stride, who are like a son and daughter to us. I should say we're still working on trying to forgive you for stealing them from us, but... <laughs> You know, I love what 1 Peter 1, chapter 9 says, and it says this, it says, what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him. I don't know about you, but I would be very unfortunate if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. But I've come all the way from Kampala, Uganda to tell you tonight, Jesus is famous for turning the unfortunate into the fortunate. You see, I'm just a simple Canadian pastor's daughter, married to this most wonderful man for 41 years. I feel like putting my red lips on his cheek right now, but he might be mad at me. But it was 32 years ago that God called Gary and I to Uganda. And I've got to tell you, Uganda was not a country people were running to back then. It was a country everybody was running away from because it was so dangerous. We used to hear gunfire every single night. Sometimes it was across the city, sometimes it was across the street, and sometimes it was right in our front yard. For the first five years of Gary's and my life there, we had to learn how to choose well. You know, friends, you rarely know the significance of a choice, but a choice well-made can make all the difference. I remember when we'd only been there a few months and I was all alone with our kids. 
They were four, six, and eight at the time. Gary was away. And in the middle of the night, a gang of armed thugs came to our house, 25 of them. And for three hours, they tried to break down a simple wooden door that I could have broken down myself. But they could not get through that door. They were pounding on the door and they were saying, you open, we're going to kill you, we're going to rape you. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I wasn't scared. I was terrified. I had only one thing on my mind. I cannot wait for the man of God to get home because when he gets home, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> I could just kind of envision, you know, the car coming down the laneway and he was going to be so excited to see me. He was going to roll the window down and he'd be anticipating those red lips coming onto his cheeks. But I had another message I was going to give him. I was going to go storming out with my hands on my hips and I was going to say, Gary, what kind of a crazy man? could bring a wife and three children to a place like this. You need your head red. Take me home to my mother now. But you know, friends, I heard a voice. And that voice said, come on, girl, get up, get up. I didn't bring you to Uganda to be paralyzed by fear. I brought you here for a purpose. And I had to make what I think is probably the most important choice I've ever made in my life, next to being a follower of Jesus Christ and marrying the most wonderful man in the world. I had to choose, was my fear going to be stronger than faith? Or was my faith going to be stronger than fear? And I had to choose to let faith, to let obedience override convenience. You know, sometimes it's very inconvenient to trust God. But I thought, God, if you can keep those 25 men out of that wooden door, there is nothing in this world that you cannot do. You know, God called us to Uganda to start a church. And like Pastor Mike said, it was 31 years ago, Easter Sunday, that we started in the Imperial Hotel, the Crystal Suite. Doesn't that sound wonderful? You can kind of just picture chandeliers hanging down. But I like to tell people, it wasn't Imperial, it wasn't Crystal, and it wasn't sweet. But 75 people showed up for that very first service. And the most important person of all showed up. His name is Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, when Jesus walks into the room, everything changes. People change, cities change, nations change. And the last 32 years of my life, I've witnessed with my very own eyes the transformation of tens of thousands of people, but also the transformation of an entire nation as Jesus' culture has saturated every sphere of influence. After about two years, we'd outgrown the Imperial Hotel, and God led us to what was then the largest public auditorium in the country. It was an old movie theater that would seat about 1,500 people. And I'll never forget walking in the first time we walked through these doors. The rain had streaked the walls. The theater seat was ripped and torn. The roof leaked so badly that when it rained, you needed an umbrella to stay dry inside. But as Gary walked through those doors, he cried out, Oh God, what a waste of a beautiful building. And then he had a vision. He didn't see it the way it was. He saw it the way it could be. I mean, isn't that like Jesus? When he looks at us, he doesn't see us the way we are. He sees us the way we can be. And friends, that's what faith is. It's not seeing our circumstances the way they are today, but it's seeing the way they will be. And we knew that was the building we were supposed to have. But we had a little problem because there was a civil war going on in the country. And when the army would catch the rebels, they would bring them to that building. They would torture them and even kill them in that building. There was no way we were going to get that building. So we did the only thing we knew what to do. When you call on Jesus, 
all things are possible. For one year we prayed, oh God, give us the building, give us the building. The political situation got worse. One day the American ambassador came to our home and he said, Mr. Skinner, I cannot tell you that you have to leave Uganda, but you need to seriously ask yourself, why are you here? And I was like standing behind the ambassador saying, yes, Carrie, that is the voice of God for our family. Listen to the ambassador, please. But we got down on our knees and we prayed. And we said, Jesus, if you want us to go, we'll go. But if you want us to stay, we will count the cost, pay the price, and stay. And God answered. And I did not like his answer. He said, don't go. Stay. I said, really, God? Are you having a bad hair day today? That's not the answer I want. He said, yes, stay. Go and ask to use that building for two weeks. When you go in, you won't go out. So we went to the army. We asked him if we could use it. We told them we'd clean the building, paint the building, and I think the idea of free paint appealed to them. So they told us we could use the building. To make a long story short, in the middle of special meetings, a military coup took place. All the soldiers that had threatened our lives ran for their lives, leaving us in the building, and we have never left. God miraculously gave us that building. Now, you ladies that were here this morning, you know that's not how we give a Ugandan hallelujah. <laughs> Every Sunday, I see with my eyes what we saw in our spirits. Over 25,000 people gathered to celebrate the awesomeness, the goodness of greatness of Jesus Christ. But it was 20 years ago when AIDS hit Uganda like a bomb. Two million boys and girls had been left orphaned as a result of that disease. And Gary and I had a revelation of what really impressed Jesus and it wasn't how many people came to our church. But did we do something about the plight of those little boys and girls? Did we do what Jesus would do when he was here? So we began to rescue them one at a time. God told us not to put them in an institution where they were in a number, but to put them in families where they were a name with a face and a future, and to raise for Jesus Christ the next generation of Ugandan leaders. And I feel so privileged because today I have over 4,000 children that call me mom. Like, that's pretty amazing, right? I tell Gary, one day we are going to be serious grandparents. I could give it a Ugandan hallelujah right now. <laughs> You know, a couple years ago, a few years ago, my sister-in-law came to help us in the ministry, and I had a nephew who was 12 at the time, and we took him out to the village to meet some of the Watoto children, and he met a little boy called Edward. And when Edward met my nephew, he said, Cameron, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Cameron looked at him, he said, I don't know, I'm only 12. And this Watoto boy who had no mother and father, had been abandoned and rejected, looked straight into the eyes of my nephew, and he said, oh, Cameron. How can you be 12 and have no purpose for your life? And then he said, Cameron, why do you go to school? And my nephew is, um, my mother makes me. And then he looked at him and he said, you know, Cameron, every day I thank Jesus for this beautiful school that I go to. And I wake up and I pray, dear God, please help my teachers teach me the things I need to know so that when I grow up, I can make a difference in my country. And then he looked at Cameron and he said, Cameron, you must go and find your purpose and you must find it quickly. A couple weeks later, my nephew came to me and he said, Auntie Marilyn, are you going out to the village today? If you see Edward, could you tell him I've decided to be an architect when I grow up? 
My nephew just graduated from university. Guess what he studied when he went to university? He found his purpose through a little Wichoto child. On behalf of all of the children that you support, I want to thank you so much for partnering with us. We could not do what we do if it wasn't for people like you. So as they say in Uganda, what do they say? <laughs> they say something that means thank you. Thank you. I should ask Doug. He knows. What do they say, Doug? Wevelinyon. It's a senior moment, you know. I am 60, so you have a little, give me a little slack, right? Wevelinyon, Wevelinyon, Wevelinyon. I get down and do it the Ugandan way. They get on their knees, but I might not get up again. <laughs> God bless you. That's my beautiful blonde wife. <laughs> They say dynamite comes in small packages, right? And it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the fight in the dog, and she's a real dog. <laughs> a couple of years ago, one of the little guys in our church was invited to participate in the Special Olympics. And of course, the Special Olympics are for boys and girls, teenagers, and adults who have disabilities. This little guy had Down syndrome. One of the events that took place there that year was the 100-meter sprint for boys and girls aged 11 and 12. Eight little disabled 11-year-olds got down in the starting blocks. The starter's pistol was ready. The massive crowd went silent. And when the pistol went off, the little boys and girls burst out of the blocks, sort of. Then they ran down that track just as hard as their little legs could carry them. You could see the strain in their faces as they were running, trying to reach the finish line first. And as they were running, one of the boys near the front tripped and he fell and he went down on the rough track and he cut his knee and he cried out in pain. One by one, each of the boys and girls that were running with him saw him, slowed down, stopped, turned around, went down and got down beside him. One of the little girls wiped the blood from his knee, kissed it and said, there, it's all better now. And then they all got up, joined their arms, and they all walked across the finish line together. Spontaneously, that massive crowd leapt to its feet and gave them the longest standing ovation of the Special Olympics for that year. They, for 15 minutes, they howled and they hooted and they whistled and they cheered and they clapped as eight little disabled 11-year-olds showed the whole world that winning in life is not crossing the finish line first, but loving and caring for those that have fallen on the way picking them up, and making winners out of them too. Ooh, isn't that just the heart of Jesus? Every one of us in the race of life has stumbled and fallen and cut our knee, but Jesus, the great winner, has stopped, turned around, kissed us, and he's in the process of making winners out of us too. That's Jesus. Wherever Jesus went when he was here 2,000 years ago, wherever he found a wounded, bruised, battered, broken heart. Do you know what Jesus did? He stopped. He reached out his hand and he touched them. And with one touch of Jesus' hand, he changed their lives forever. That was Jesus. Like little old blind Bartimaeus. Do you remember him? Sitting beside the road, begging for a few scraps just to survive. And then one day, in the monotony of his life, he heard the commotion of the crowd as the Christ passed by. Who is it? What's the noise, he asked. Someone said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. 
They say he's a miracle worker, heals the sick. Some say he's the Messiah. And little old blind Bartimaeus knew this was his only hope. So he stood up and cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody around him said, sit down, old man. He doesn't care about you. But you go read it again. The Bible says he cried out all the louder, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I believe that a cry for mercy from a hurting heart is like sweet music to the ear of Jesus. I don't think he can hear it and just walk by. He didn't then. He stopped. He isolated the little old man's cry and called him. I can see Bartimaeus stumbling across the road, finding Jesus and kneeling down at the most wonderful place in the whole universe at the feet of Jesus. And he looked up with glazed over eyes that could see nothing. And Jesus still asked him, what can I do for you? That I might see, Lord. And then Jesus did it. He reached out his hand and he touched him. And with one touch of Jesus' hand, he changed his life forever. The little old man's eyes opened up. And the first thing he ever saw was Jesus. That's Jesus. That's what he does. Wherever he finds a hurting heart, he stops and touches. What about the little children who came to Jesus, but the disciples chased them away, and Jesus said, no, bring the children, bring the children. I can see Jesus sitting down, gathering the children around him, scooping a little girl up onto his knee, and the, telling them a Bible story. And then the Bible says he put his hands on them, he touched them, and he blessed them, and sent them home. Because that's what Jesus does. He touches, and he changes people's lives. What about the little widow from the village of Nain on the way to the cemetery to bury her only son? Her husband's already there, and she was crying. And the Bible says when Jesus saw her tears, he was moved with compassion. So he went over to the funeral procession. He stopped it, and then he did it again. He reached out his hand, and he touched the dead boy. And the dead boy woke up. Jesus gave him back to his mama, changed their lives forever because that's what Jesus does. Wherever he finds a wounded, bruised, battered, broken heart, he stops, he touches, and changes their life forever. The greatest way that Jesus ever reached out his hand was not when he reached it out like this to touch one, but when he reached it out like this, and they, were, they nailed those beautiful hands to a rough Roman cross. When he reached out like this, he touched one. But when he reached out like this, he touched the whole world. And even on that cross, with his hands nailed to that cross, he still managed to reach out and touch the thief and change his life forever because that's what Jesus does. When Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, how did he touch a hurting world? Through his body. How does Jesus still touch a hurting world today? Through his body. We are the body of Christ. Wherever we find hurting, wounded, bruised, battered, broken people, we're not just to pass by, we're to stop, reach out our hand and touch and change their lives and be the touch of Jesus to a hurting world. You know, that's what missions is all about. It's going to the lost, to the hurt, to the wounded, and being Jesus, touching them. That's why 32 years when God told us to go to Uganda to plant an English-speaking church, it was to a broken nation, a hurting nation, 
that had been through 20 years of civil war and a million people had died. The people were hurting and broken. And as we started that church, it just began to grow. And then, as you've heard, God spoke to us very clearly one day. He said to me, he said, Gary, I want you to look after my children. I knew what he meant. We had two million orphans in a nation of 20 million people, the highest number per capita of any nation in the world. He said, I want you to look after my children. I said, God, I don't want to look after kids. Kids pee their pants. They flatulate. I, I, want, to, I want to preach. I want to build this great church. And Jesus said to me, I didn't send you to Uganda to do what you want. I sent you to Uganda to do what I want, look after my children. And I argued with God. For a year, it seemed like every time I opened the Bible... It was about God's heart for the hurting and for the poor, especially the widow and the orphan. He took me to that great verse in Psalms where it says, extol him that rides on the heavens by his name, Yah. And then, you know what the next verse says? The father of the fatherless, the defender of the widow, is he in his holy dwelling place? He sets the lonely in families. He said, Gary, you can't separate who I am in heaven in my awesome power from who I am for a snotty-nosed, bloated-bellied, fly-in-the-eye little kid that's been dumped in a ditch. I'm the God of heaven, and I'm the God of the ditch. Set the lonely in families. And I knew we were to start not an orphanage, but build little homes, and so that's what we do. It took me to that great verse that we all know now from the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 27 the kind of religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Because I think there's a religion that he doesn't accept. He's not impressed by how big our church is or how well we think we preach or how much money is in our bank account or what titles we have behind our name or what our denominational heritage is. The kind of religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. He said to me, it's not just, Gary, go and ask people for money so you can touch the orphans and the widow. Teach my people to be my hand extended and visit them themselves. And not, and not to be polluted by the world doesn't mean to stop doing the bad things the world does. It means not allowing the mind pollution, which is... I want more, 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 give me more, and accumulating more for ourselves. God's not a grabber, God's a giver. He gave his very best when he gave Jesus. I stopped fighting with God, I said, God, I'll look after your children. Today we have 4,000 little boys and girls that we've taken from the streets or have been in circumstances where they lost their mom and dad and they're little boys and girls with in an extended family, an uncle or an auntie or a grandparent, many of them sexually abused, and they lie on some mud hut floor and they cry out, oh God, why me? And I believe that every time someone cries out, God hears, always hears, and he always responds. And how does he respond? By asking us to be his hand extended. Our first little girl, Jessica Namuli, she's 22 years of age. She was just a baby in arms. But her life has been changed because somebody bothered to stop, reach out their hand and touch, and change their lives. In the middle of all of that, we had a war in northern Uganda going on while we were there. 35,000 
Little boys and girls were abducted in the middle of the night from their homes by the Lord's resistance army and turned into little child soldiers doing horrendous things. We had two of our children stolen, a little boy and a little girl. We prayed for them for about three or four years. Someone said, why are you not in northern, northern Uganda? I said, God hasn't told us to go, but we began to feel a stirring in our hearts. Saturday night, we prayed and said, yeah, I think we need to do something. Sunday morning, I woke up, there was an SMS on my phone from Gary Clark, the pastor of Hillsong in London, and, and he was saying, God spoke to me to send you the first 25,000 pounds for what you're gonna do in Gulu. It was a yes moment. I said, Marilyn, why don't you go up and see the camps? A million and a half people had been settled in camps away from their homes. Go and see and if you can find Irene, the girl that escaped. So she went up. She saw the camps and how bad it was. She went to find Irene. She found Irene. She was now 15 years of age. She'd been abducted when she was just 11. Marilyn said, could you tell me your story? She didn't want to, but eventually she did. She said, in the middle of the night, they came. They beat up my mom and my grandmother. They tied us children up. And then they made us run. We ran for hours. And when we got tired, the little ones said, we have to have a rest. They took our little ones and they took them to a tree and said, you can rest here forever. And then they beat them to death in front of us. And they said, nobody gets tired, run. And so the kids ran on. One of the little sisters thought maybe she could escape while the soldiers were not watching. But the soldiers saw her and brought her back and hit her on the head and forced Irene and the others to bite their baby sister to death. And then they made them run. The next morning when they got to the camp, the soldiers took off their shirts and threw them in a pile and told the girls to pick up a shirt. And whatever soldier owned that shirt, that girl became another wife for that soldier. Had to cook his food, wash his clothes, carry his equipment, service him sexually. When Irene was 13, she was pregnant. She gave birth to a baby in the bush. She would lie on that floor or on that grass mat. She would sing a song that she learned in Sunday school, my only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you. From early in the morning till late at night, my only hope is you. And she would cry. And every time someone cries, Jesus always hears and he always responds. Irene was able to escape one day in the middle of a battle. It took her six months to get home. When she got home, her baby died. She found her grandmother had died. Two weeks later, Marilyn showed up. And with tears coursing down her cheeks, Marilyn said, how did you feel, Irene? She said, all I wanted to do was finish school and become a nurse. And Marilyn reached out and embraced Irene and looked her in the eyes and told her, we're going to help you reach the dreams that you have. And today, Irene has graduated from college and she's fulfilling the dream. Her life has been changed. Why? Because somebody bothered to stop, reach out their hand and touch. We've had the privilege of rescuing 250 boys and girls that were former child soldiers. Well, we felt that maybe we should bring them down to Kampala, but no, God said plant a church. We went up to see the governor of the state where Gulu is. We said, sir, we've come to plant a church. He said, you have my blessing. I said, but we really come to serve you. How can we serve you? He said, our child soldiers. He said, our hospital is destroyed. He said, there are 900 women on the streets of our city who are HIV positive. They're for, many of them former child soldiers and they, uh, the girls, and they can't go back to their villages, and they, they're, eight, they, they don't, they're abandoned. They don't know what to do. We said, we can do that. So we've begun to do all of those things. Marilyn stirred in her heart to make an advert and to see if she could get about 1,000 of the women that she might be able to begin to help. 
5,000 women heard the advert on the radio. 5,000 showed up. She, she, she found 1,000 of the most vulnerable, and then another 1,000 in Kampala. She gave them uh, an embrace. She reached out and embraced them. And then she gave them some uh, equipment, equipping them and, and teaching them their value and their dignity and their worth. And they feel like nothing. And she holds up a $10 bill that's dirty and broken and smelly and the other one's crisp clean. And she says to the ladies, which one of these is worth more money? They're worth the same, even though one's dirty and broken and the other's crisp and clean. And the ladies begin to understand. In the eyes of God, we're all the same. And they, they begin to shine. And then she, she gives them something to be able to start a small business. And she's been able to change the lives of thousands of women in Uganda. If I could take you, as I've taken your pastor, up to Gulu, and you could see them radiating and shining and their skin beautiful and their hair and wearing jewelry... You'd cry like I cry every time. Why? Because somebody bothered to stop and touch and reach out and touch, change their lives. I could go on. I could tell you about the babies abandoned. Over 1,200 little boys and girls, many of them premature. We've been able to pick them up. Some of the choirs that travel now, the children of the choir, the babies that have come through the system. And I just believe that God's got a beautiful plan for their lives. Marilyn saw a woman whose nose and ears and lips had been cut off. She found out that there were hundreds like that that had happened throughout the war. So we've been able to do 350 surgeries. Women who, who felt rejected and abandoned and cried out, oh God, why me? And God hears and he responds, how? By sending us. Can I close with this? It's Moses. He's in the wilderness looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And he sees a burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. But the bush is not being burned up. So he goes over to see it. And it was God getting his attention because God wanted to say something to him. Take off your shoes, Moses. This is holy ground. And then he speaks to Moses. He says... I have seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cry, and I have identified and felt their pain. So I've come down to do something about it. And I want you to know every time someone hurts, God sees and he hears and he identifies, he feels, and he always responds. And you can hear Moses saying, well, good for you, God. I'm glad you finally come down to do something about the pain. But what does God say? So I'm sending you. And what does Moses respond with? Excuses, like we do when God speaks to us. Moses says, but, but, but God, who am I? The problem is so big. I'm so little, who am I? And God says, Moses, Moses, Moses. It doesn't matter who you are, it matters who I am. Moses, you and I, we're enough. And so many of us feel so insignificant. And the problem is so big, and what can I do? And God says, you and I, we're enough. And what does Moses do? He goes on with more excuses. But what if they don't hear me? And God says to Moses, what's that in your hand? And it was a stick, a dead stick, his shepherd's staff. And God said, throw it down on the ground. And Moses threw it down on the ground and it turned into a snake and he ran. And God said, no, pick up the snake by its tail. And he picked up the snake by its tail. 
when Moses let go and gave to God the thing that was the symbol of his livelihood, the thing that was in his hand, God entered into it and it turned from just a dead stick to Moses, mighty rod of authority that parted the waters of the Red Sea and brought water out of a rock. And I want to say to you, every single one of us has something in our hands that is the symbol of our livelihood. And God says, give it to me. You may not feel like it's important or big or significant like a dead stick but when you give what's in your hand to God and God enters into it, it becomes a mighty tool. If you're a teacher, you have a book. If you're a doctor, you have a stethoscope. If you're a businessman, you have a checkbook. If you're a hairdresser, you have a pair of scissors. And God can take what's in your hand and turn it into something significant. So I've come tonight to tell you, young people, God wants to use you. Mom and Dad, maybe you feel like you're too old. There's teams that travel out. God wants to use you to be his hand extended and touch a hurting world by letting go of what's in your hand. Would you bow your heads together with me? Can I pray for you? We're all at a different place on our journey, but God wants to take you in your insignificance and in what you feel is your insecurity and do something significant. So, Father, I pray for this precious church and these wonderful people, and every one of them feels insignificant and you and them are enough, and Lord, every one of them has something in their hand. I pray that you would speak to them and show them how, as they give it to you, you can do something significant through them to touch a hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen.